Today the passage comes to us from Acts chapter 22, verse 22, all the way to chapter 23, verse 11. It's really long, so please follow along. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a, fo- a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like that. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So, this, uh, so the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And, he, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews... He unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intensely at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you? <laughs> Sorry. Are you sitting to judge the, according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by him, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil for a, of a ruler of your people. Sorry. Now, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he has said to this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The grass weathers withers the flower face, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. Last time we were in Acts, we learned that Paul was arrested by the Roman guards after being unjustly accused by the Jews for defiling God's temple and violating their sacred Jewish laws. And so Paul began to give his initial defense, but as soon as he mentioned how God had commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, the Jewish mob's anger turned into rage, and they shouted, verse 22, 
Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, the Romans, they were not exactly sure what to do because the reason for the Jews wanting Paul dead, it was not entirely clear to them. But it says in verse 24 that the tribune, you can think of him as a military commander, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Evidently, it was common Roman practice to interrogate people by flogging, right, which was basically a form of torture. But it was actually illegal, according to Roman law, for a Roman officer to flog a Roman citizen without a formal trial. And Paul, of course, knew this. So as they stretch him out to get whipped, he says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? I wanted to pause here for a moment because I think there's an important lesson to be learned here. Paul knew very well how painful flogging was because he was previously flogged by Jewish authorities as he records for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He writes, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That was a Jewish formulation. That's how they flogged who they deemed to be criminals. And this means that for Paul... The risk of being tied up and flogged by the enemies of the gospel never deterred him from clearly testifying of the gospel wherever he went. You know, all throughout his missionary journeys, he would be committed to speaking truthfully of the gospel. And what that led to was flogging. Forty lashes less one. Right? Did that stop him? No. He would declare the gospel again. Another flogging. That happened five times is what we learn. But we also need to make clear here that when Paul knew that the law was clearly on his side, he used that to his advantage because he wasn't some masochist to enjoy the pain of being tortured. He didn't delight in being flogged. And I hope this sounds like common sense to all of you. You know, we as Christians are called to suffer in this life because of our faith, yes. And I'm sure that not many of you would disagree with me on that, right? But we are not to ask to suffer simply for suffering's sake. We are not to, you know, just look for opportunities to, to get pummeled, to get tortured by people to be persecuted. You know, if we can avoid unnecessary suffering, especially the kind that is unlawful and unjust, guess what? We are allowed to use lawful means to do so. Some of you may be thinking how we're supposed to reconcile Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek with what you're hearing now. And if you're thinking that, then great, you're you're being a very thoughtful Bible student. Okay? You should be thinking about all sorts of questions as you hear God's word proclaimed. But what you need to remember 
is that in, in that particular context, Jesus was primarily teaching against the vengeful spirit and the temptation to personally retaliate against someone who has wronged us. Jesus was not saying that every time someone wrongs us, we need to make sure that we give that perpetrator even more access so that they can harm us more. I hope that just, that idea bothers you, that that would be what the teaching is about. So let's say if someone breaks into your home with a weapon, whatever weapon that may be, and he, he wants to do violence against you, right? You don't give that person a free pass. I hope you don't. And you definitely don't allow that person to freely harm your wife or your children. If, you, if that's what you think, I would say that you're an extremely irresponsible father and husband. And I know that what I'm saying is right because just a few chapters later, In Matthew 10, so the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus offered that teaching is found early in Matthew. But in Matthew 10, it says this. Jesus says this to his disciples. When they persecute you in one town, flee. Get out of there. Go to the next town. Seek safety. In other words, don't be sitting ducks. Avoid unjust suffering if it's possible to do so is the teaching. And not only that, the Bible also does speak about the legitimacy of self-defense and when it's appropriate to use force. Not all force is wrong. There are contexts which force is actually very appropriate. And I bring this up because many Christians today, as you ought to know, and more so than ever before, are being mistreated in their schools and in their workplaces. And given our present reality, I thought it would be helpful to remember that in our passage today, Paul is using lawful means to avoid unlawful punishment. And that is perfectly fine for us to do as well. Brothers and sisters, know that you have such freedom. Do not live as if you are completely helpless against unjust treatment. Now, in the rest of our story, we see that Paul was brought before what's called a Jewish council. The Jewish council is basically this, what's, what we, you, know, you may know as a Sanhedrin. You may have heard that term more before. It's a Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was basically a Jewish court that ruled on important legal cases. And it says in verse 30 that because the Roman tribune had no idea why the Jews wanted Paul dead. I mean, utterly confused. Like, why, why are these Jews so mad at this guy who seems so innocent? And he wanted to find out. And so he calls the Sanhedrin to assemble, hoping that it would shed some light on this case. He wanted to know, like genuinely. So what we essentially have today is Paul being put on trial before an official, right? not some like Jewish mob on the street, which we saw before earlier, but here it's, it's an official Jewish court. So things progress. Right? And I know that most of us have 
never had to step into an actual courtroom to be put on trial for our Christian beliefs, at least not yet. Let's hope that it never does happen. But I also thought, in a real sense, our faith is put on trial every single day as we enter into our classrooms and into our workplaces. And so as I was reflecting upon this passage, I I thought it could serve as a helpful case study on how we as Christians could appropriately respond to others when our faith is put on trial wherever we may be in this world. And so with that purpose in mind, I wanted to briefly highlight three things that Paul appeals to as he gives his formal defense before this Jewish court. That's my focus today. So what are these three things? Well, they are, number one, personal conscience. Number two, the law. And number three, what Paul calls resurrection hope, which you can also understand to be the hope we have in the gospel. Right? So for simplicity's sake, you may, you may say personal conscience, the law, and the gospel are three things that Paul appeals to as he gives his defense. And I want you to know that these three things are all very valuable. They're extremely important to us, but they're not equally important, okay? They're not equally valuable. I think it's safe to say that the law is more valuable than personal conscience and that the gospel is much more valuable than the law. So with the remaining time I have today, I'm going to try to unpack that for us. First, notice that Paul appeals to his own conscience in his opening statement. Chapter 23, verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. I have lived with a clear conscience, is what he first says, as his defense. And Paul's opening statement is, is actually pretty easy to overlook given that as soon as he speaks these words, the high priest orders someone to strike his mouth. And so what happens is emotions escalate quickly and and the story moves on. But I think it's really worth pausing for a moment here to consider how it was even possible for Paul to make such a statement, given his personal history of how he hunted down Christians, imprisoning them, and even presiding over their death sentences. I mean, did Paul forget that all these terrible things happened in his past? Of course he didn't. But the fact that he lived before God in all good conscience and the fact that he committed many heinous sins during his lifetime can both be true, right? They're not mutually exclusive things. Then does this mean that it's worthless to even try to Live with a clean conscience if we're going to sin anyway, as Paul did? No. God's word makes it very clear that we should never willingly violate our own consciences because God gave each of us a conscience to prevent us from becoming the worst versions of ourselves. It's meant to stop us from doing even more heinous things. So conscience is valuable. What we should be reminded here, though, is that our conscience, though it's meant to guide us, it's not 
an infallible guide to right living. It's not perfect. It can be easily corrupted. Our consciences are meant to function like this internal moral compass within each of us. But see, as we face all kinds of social pressures, as we're doing now, and as we fall perhaps into habitual sins, as many of you are, have fallen into, our internal compasses can easily break and become dysfunctional. And that's when people start claiming that left is right and right is left, and they have no clue as to how to live rightly. They're confused. There's mass chaos everywhere, morally speaking, spiritually speaking. And the Bible says that such people possess consciences that are seared with a hot iron. That's a dysfunctional conscience. Right? It's numb. But can a seared conscience be restored? Can a broken compass become fully functional again? Yes, it can. But it cannot fix itself. It needs to be repaired and calibrated to point to true north again. And what true north is for a compass, God's law is for the human conscience. And that's why God's law is more superior, it's more valuable, it's more needed, because it's what calibrates the human conscience. And that's why Paul's teaching never ends with simply, you know what, just guys, follow your conscience. You know, just you do you. Right? He never sounded like a Sprite commercial, you know, follow your thirst. Because he knows that without God's law, the conscience cannot properly function. Please notice how Paul uh, appeals to God's law in our story today. After being struck in, in the mouth, Paul says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall and, and Brother here earlier tried to sound tough saying those words, and no matter how you say it, it doesn't really sound like tough language, to be honest. I hope, I hope the translators use different language, but I guess literally that's what it means, whitewashed wall. It, it's, it's meant to say, you hypocrites, right? You hypocrites. You look, you know, clean on the outside, but look how dirty, look how dead you are on the inside, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me? Look how Paul appeals to the law here. According to the law, are you sitting to judge me? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck, you hypocrites. And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul responds with, I did not know. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. And he appeals to God's law again. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of a people. Now, some scholars, truth be told, they argue that Paul must have been using sarcasm here. You know, like Paul was, oh, I, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Yeah, you, yeah, you know, you whitewash wall. You know, he, he wasn't doing that. I, I, I highly doubt that he was genuinely ignorant of the fact that it was the high priest who ordered him to be struck because he was away from Jerusalem a very long time. He was not living in an era where social media was accessible. 
he would not have known exactly what the high priest looked like. So I, I, I believe that he was generally unaware of who ordered what, or at least who ordered him to be struck. And he's generally regretful for unknowingly showing disrespect toward his leaders because he knew that that was a direct violation of God's law. He was a noble character. Right? Some of you would not care at all. Some of you would just keep on cussing the leader out. You, know? you wouldn't stop at whitewashed wall. You would say other inappropriate things. And so here's a quick but important practical application for all of us to consider. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter how much you despise the current president and his administration's policies. As Christians, we are called to pray for our leaders and we are called to respect our governing authorities, no matter how difficult that may be. And so I am thankful that Pastor Jacob actually offered a prayer for our president and our leaders. But to respect our leaders does not mean offering blind support for them or for their policies, pretending that all is well. You know, it's all great. The world is great. Our country's doing fine because of, you know, Who's in office? No, you don't, that, that's not what respect means. But you know what you're not called to do? You know what respect is supposed to look like? It, it means that we are to avoid vile speech. We are not to also threaten violent behavior against our leaders. And I'm not saying that any of you have done that. But I'm sure you've been tempted in some way to do so. So this is another reason why Paul's example here is helpful. Because he had all the reasons to cuss his leaders out. But he refrains from doing so because he was committed to living in submission to God's law. Brothers and sisters, we all need to recover our love and appreciation for God's law if we hope to maintain our sanity in this morally confused world we're living in. I want you to hear the psalmist cry out in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And in Psalm 119, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Remember that the law of God is the very words that flow from God himself, and it's a genuine reflection of God's perfect character, his beauty, his wisdom. The law reflects all of that. Think of it this way. If if someone came up to me and said, Pastor Paul, you know, I, I really, truly respect you, but I don't respect the things you say. I don't respect your words. Not only when you speak from the pulpit on Sunday, but I don't, <laughs> I don't respect anything you say, basically. 
what, what would I be thinking if someone said that to me? I would be thinking, well, you know, that, that actually means then that you don't respect me at all whatsoever. Yeah, you don't respect me because my words, you know, as long as I'm in, in a mental stable condition, my words are an accurate representation of who I am and what I believe. My words matter. And so if you say that you love God, but you don't love his law, then there is a big problem. There is a big inconsistency. Wouldn't you think? If you reject God's law, then you are essentially rejecting God's rule over your life. And you're inviting this brokenness to set in. That's why we see so much brokenness around us because of people's rejection of God's law wherever you go. Our culture is deeply confused because it has abandoned what makes its moral compass even work. Every person is a law unto themselves. Because if you reject God's law, then what are you left with? You are left with yourself. You are left with autonomos, self-law. That's where we get the word autonomy or autonomous. And, you know, being autonomous can be a very good thing when understood in the right context. Like you want to be an autonomous human being right, in some sense. I get that. But we are never, brothers and sisters, to seek autonomy from God's governance over us. We are never to escape from living under submission, in submission to God's rule. We are to love God's law, and we are to do our best to honor God's law, not only in our hearts, but in our homes, in our culture. And we should encourage all people to do the same. So what else are we going to do? Are we going to encourage them to follow someone else's law? But this last point I want to make is the most important point for this morning. So please listen carefully. And, and the point is this. As good and pure and perfect as God's law is, it doesn't have the power to save us. Okay, God's law is very valuable, but there's something even more valuable. Okay? I want you to realize that, you know, one of the main purposes of God's law, in case you've forgotten, is to expose us for who we truly are. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. The law clarifies that for me. In other words, the law exposes who I am as a sinner. He would not have known the extent of his moral filth and depravity had it not been for the law. That's his point. In a sense, God's law functions like a powerful mirror revealing who we truly are. How many of you took a shower this morning? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay. Oh. Joe confidently raised his hand in the back, okay? I'm sure it was a great shower. I hope all of you, especially after uh, partying hard last night over here, Pastor Andrew, partied really, really hard. 
after Pastor David's wedding. I have uh, video evidence. I, I was tempted to post it on our Cornerstone EM page, but then I decided not to. But it was just fun to see him let loose and, you know, just dance and have a good time. So I have that embedded in my memory here. Um, see, but my point is most of you look very good on the outside. You look clean. You look spotless. But what would happen if I took a hair sample, for those of you who have hair, <laughs> and I brought it under the scrutiny of a microscope? What would you see? You would see a hard-looking, Godzilla-like creatures roaming around, eating away at your dead skin. They're called dust mites. Whether you like it or not, they're living inside your hair. And that, that is what a, a powerful mirror of God's law does to us. It exposes our shame and our filth. And that can sound pretty discouraging, but God does not want us to remain discouraged. You know, God does not want us to remain paralyzed by our guilt and shame. Thankfully, God does not only give us his laws, these laws that we can never measure up to. Okay? Thankfully, he has also given us a savior who is able to perfectly fulfill all of God's righteous laws on our behalf so that we would no longer have to be condemned under the crushing weight of it all. And this is why, brothers and sisters, the gospel holds greater value than the law. Yes, we all need God's law. Every single person needs God's law. Our culture right now, our country right now, is in desperate need of God's law. See, but without the gospel, we will all be eventually crushed under its weight. Because in the end, it just condemns us. It just tells us we're not good enough. With the gospel, however, our hearts are freed to delight in it, you see. That is the power of the gospel. It rescues us from condemnation. I love this old poetic expression that is normally attributed to John Bunyan. Hear this. Run, John, run, the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. For better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Brothers, sisters, if you want to mature as a Christian, you need to have a clear understanding of how God's law and the gospel are to be viewed in relationship to one another. I remember one of my theological mentors putting it this way. As the law exposes our sin, it's meant to drive us to the gospel. The gospel then saves us from the crushing weight of the law, but in turn directs us back to the law to search its spirit, its goodness, and beauty. And I'm sure many of you already know this to be true. 
Okay? You all know this already, so it's just kind of like review. But, see, if you're like me, you may often struggle to genuinely delight in who God is as he reveals himself through his laws. Let me confess that whenever I feel angry at God, it's because something didn't go my way or because I just, it's like, I don't understand why God would allow such things to happen. Like, why this? Why that? And you become disgruntled. I become disgruntled in, in my spirit. But in, in such moments, when my soul is not at peace, it really does help to remember that he is God and I am not. He is God and I am not. Because once I elevate myself and begin to treat myself as his peer, once I think that I know better, right, that I'm even capable of wrapping my mind around his thoughts, in the meantime, I can't even solve this simple problem right in front of me, right? Once I equate myself to God, see, that, that's when my pride and arrogance takes over. And it makes it really impossible for me to worship him with any delight, with any joy. There's just anger and disgruntlement. And so, brothers and sisters, Pastor Jacob is going to call us to the table soon. Well, the Lord's going to call us through, let me be exact there. The Lord's going to call us. Pastor Jacob is going to administer the sacrament. But as we gather around the Lord's table, please, let's not treat this table as though it's something we deserve. You know, Oh, God is treating us like peers, you know, like my buddy, buddy. I can just kind of sit next to him, you know, kind of nonchalantly and eat with him. No, let's not, let's not treat God as though he is our equal. Rather, let's remember that God is inviting us to receive his Grace, which is by definition something that is undeserved, if you've forgotten. So let's approach him, brothers and sisters, not with a disgruntled spirit, but with gratitude, okay, with joy, with love. And if you struggle with those things right now, pray, offer a prayer. God, help me to see that you are God. I could trust you, that I'm just like a little speck compared to your glory. Who am I? Who am I to question your ways? And so may your heart submit under his authority, his laws, as the gospel frees you to do that. May you see him as beautiful once again. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for not leaving us in spiritual darkness, but providing us with your word, which includes your perfect laws, as well as the revelation of the gospel of grace made possible through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we are now able to live as people no longer crushed under the, the weight of the law, but now freed from our chains to love your law and to be eager to walk in obedience to it. Lord, as we're about to approach your table, we ask for you to nourish us and strengthen us as your people that we may face this world with a renewed hope 
in the resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.